Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us in these spaces, and we pray that these would truly be spirit-filled spaces for us. Spirit, come as we've been worshiping, as we trust that you've already been moving among us. Move us towards your word, that we would understand it. Move us towards your Christ, that we would hear the welcome of grace as Jesus has died and has risen for us. Father, do a good work now in the reading and preaching of your scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. What's your take on flowers? Are you a flowers person or not a flowers person? If you're a flowers person, maybe if it's a romantic relationship, maybe if you have a good friend, maybe some type of celebration, you'll get some flowers. There are a lot of good florists here in the area. For my part, and for my wife Emily's part, she's not in the room right now. She's home with a sick child, child's doing fine. We're not flower people. And here's a story for you about how I came to discover that my wife Emily was not a flower person. We started dating in college, and early on in our relationship, every once in a while, I'd get a flower or two. You know, here's a weekend coming up, I'm going to circle that for some flowers, and you know, when you're young and in love, it's like, hey, this is our two-month dating anniversary, let's go ahead and do flowers for that sort of thing, special occasions. And when I would give Emily flowers, she would happily receive them. But then there was one night when we had a bad date. And bad dates, you'll have to ask Emily about this, happened a shockingly frequent number of times for me and Emily when we were dating. And so that went out to dinner. Dinner was not going well at all. And at the end of it, my wife, who values authentic speech, said, Jim, this has been a really bad date. This has not gone well at all. And for every stage of my life, I've always thought to myself that I'm way mature beyond my years, including then. This is what I told her back. Jim, this is a really, really bad date. I just want to go home. I said, but I got you flowers. And, you know, probably shouldn't have said that, but even as I say it out loud right now, there is part of me that says, that actually was not a bad reason. I mean, the, the, the date function box is you put flowers in one side and a good date comes out the other. I still don't quite get it. But overall, she was right. A good date or good flowers don't necessarily produce a good date. But after I said, but I got you flowers, this is what Emily said back. I don't care about flowers. And I was like, 
what do you mean? You're, you're kidding, right? And she said, no, seriously, I don't care about flowers. I'm not a flower person. I was totally shocked by that. And over the coming weeks, as we unpacked my shock and it came down a little bit, Emily said, hey, some people really love flowers. And if you know the, if you've done any sort of like, you know, counseling, it's one of those like personality types. Love languages is sort of one of the things that you can rabbit hole on the internet. And Emily explained to me, flowers are not my love language. Giving gifts works for a lot of people, not for me. And so then I went through a process of listening to Emily, learning her love languages, and doing my best to try to utilize those love languages. And here's the thing. If Emily had not told me, if she had not verbalized to me, Jim, I'm not a flowers person, I would have had no idea. She needed to tell me. It was necessary. Or a similar story a few years after that, the good dates must have eventually outweighed the bad dates because we did get married, and then we moved to Philadelphia for graduate school. I was with the Christian's men, Christian men's group one day, and there was a specific husband who was grousing about his wife, and it, it wasn't cool, but he kept saying, he kept talking, saying, my, I can't do anything right. There's nothing that I can do that pleases my wife. Nothing I do makes her feel good or happy. I just do all the wrong things all the time. And there was genuinely an older and wiser man in the room than I. His name was Lloyd. He was a carpenter in West Philly at the time. He eventually went to seminary and is now a pastor in Long Island. But as the husband was going off on his wife, Lloyd asked him, have you asked her what she wants or what she needs? And he said, I, I know that. I'm her husband. And he kept going. And then Lloyd would circle back again. Right, but have you asked her, like, what's pleasing to her and what she wants? It's like, no, I don't need to do that. I, I live with her all the time. Circled back around a couple of times till Lloyd eventually said, okay, it sounds like you have not actually asked your wife what she wants and what she needs. And this was Lloyd's punchline. You're not actually in a relationship. And that was a little bit over the top for rhetorical effect. He was married to this other person. But he says, in relationships, there must be give and take. You've got to listen to each other. And Lloyd was genuinely a humble person, and he said, I don't always do this in my marriage, but this is my goal. Because I am in a relationship of love with my wife, I listen to her so that I might learn what is pleasing to her, and therefore I want to do what is pleasing for her. I listen to her so that I can learn what is pleasing to her. That's how relationships work. And friends, here's some good news for you, for us, for the world here this morning. The living Lord, the God of the universe, wants to have a relationship with you. The one, the creator of heaven and earth, that we speak to and pray to and sing to every Sunday morning and throughout the week wants to be in relationship with you. That's why he sent Jesus. To live with us, to die for us, to rise again, to settle the debt for our sin on the cross so that when we come to Jesus by faith, we're not trusting in our goodness, we're trusting in Jesus' goodness on our behalf that transfers to us by faith and we receive Jesus' forgiveness, we receive Jesus' renovation and new life, as we're gathered into a new family, the church, as we're given a greater purpose in our lives to live, speak, and serve as Jesus' presence here, as we look forward to a new day to come, 
when the new heavens and new earth will arrive. That's why he sent Jesus. And as we unite to Jesus by faith, we are in a living relationship with the living Lord. And it's upon us, because it's a relationship of love, to listen to God, to learn about God, so that we can do and act what is pleasing to him. And as God has revealed himself, the church has confessed, we have the Bible. We have the scriptures. This is God's gift, one of them. God's gift, a gracious self-disclosure, self-revelation. This is who I am. This is my story inspired of how I have engaged with men and women throughout the ages, culminating in my son. It's for you. What's your take on the Bible? What do you think about it? There are a lot of opinions in the church around the world. There are a lot of opinions in our culture about the scriptures. That's what we're going to talk about here this morning. We're going to talk about the Bible. But think of it this way and keep this in mind. If God is a person, persons reveal themselves. That's what people do. Will you receive? Will you obey what God has revealed to us in the scriptures? So from Genesis chapter 2, we're actually going to talk in four parts for the rest of the sermon. In traditional theological categories, there have been given four attributes of Scripture, and we're going to go through those here in the sermon this morning. So we're going to talk about the necessity of the Scriptures. We're going to talk about the sufficiency of the Scriptures. We're going to talk about the clarity of the Scriptures. And then we're going to talk about the authority of the Scriptures. So necessity, sufficiency, clarity, and authority— And if that's not too much to keep in mind, we're going to put four R's with each of them. So with the necessity of the scriptures, we get relationship. With the clarity of the scriptures, we get reality. With the sufficiency of the scriptures, we get rest. And then with the authority of the scriptures, we get a healthy relativizing. So let's talk about the necessity of the scriptures through which we get relationship with God. This fall at Liberty Callings, but another part of the Represence Initiative, we've been going through the early chapters of Genesis, literally the first two, and we've been talking about a lot of difficult things at different points, a lot of hot-button issues in our culture. What do we think about this? What do we think about that? And I've just been trying my best up here to go back to the scriptures and say, not a priest, not a politician, but this is what I think the scriptures teach and come, how they come to bear on issues X, Y, and Z. And that's been the pattern. Take a contemporary issue, go back to the scriptures. But maybe some of you either in the room or online have had the question, why is this our method? It's a fair question. Why do we keep going back to the Bible? Should that really be my authority? Can we trust it? Maybe if you're struggling with faith or you're not a Christian, or maybe if you're a pretty solid Christian, you still wonder, is this enough for me? Because you might think, the Bible is a really old book, written a long time ago. Can it really speak with authority to the current age? And I've heard from people over the years that the Bible contains a ton of contradictions. It's not even a unified book. It's super messy. Is it something that we can trust and obey? 
Well, as we go back to the Garden of Eden here in Genesis chapter 2, God gives a word to the first person, the man Adam, and that is a word designed to be trusted and obeyed. And we access this first person, our first parent, as representatively, Adam is called to trust and obey God's word. Again, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in the Garden of Eden, and you can go back and listen to past sermons about it too, lots of plants, lots of vegetation, a veritable cornucopia of vegetation in the Garden of Eden. Two trees in particular, though, the tree of life, and then also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the deal, especially with this second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where God says, all of the rest, fair game, green light, but don't eat from this specific tree. And for millennia in Jewish and Christian circles, people have reflected, what's going on with that tree? Is it an incantation? Is it magic where somehow once that, and to spoil alert a little bit, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve do eat from that tree with the help of the serpent. Is the spell broken? Is there something magical there? And the way that I like to think about it, the way that it was taught to me, is you can think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This might muddy the waters instead of make it more clear. Shout out to a certain podcast. Treat it like a proto-sacrament. So with the Lord's Supper and with baptism... Nothing magical happens when we're baptized, when our kids are baptized, when we take the bread and the cup, but they sign and signify something real. And so the act of taking a bite from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sacramentally or points to a disobedience. And there are different opinions in Jewish and Christian circles about what does it symbolize if the man and the woman were to take an apple and eat it. And to me, the majority report, the easiest way to think about it is it's an act of moral autonomy. It's an act of Adam and Eve saying, God, I don't need you to be the authority. I don't need you to be the arbiter of what good is and what evil is. I'm going to be my own reference point. I'm going to be my own moral authority. And this is the first negative command in all of the scriptures given to human beings. God has spoken to humanity so far. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. We've talked a lot about these things. But then this is the first negative command where God says, don't do something. And Martin Luther, the 16th century church leader, said that there is a lot going on here. I believe in the Reflections page of the worship folder, you'll see that Luther says this. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is Adam's church, altar, and pulpit. Here he was to yield to God the obedience he owed, give recognition to the word and will of God, give thanks to God, and call upon God for aid against temptation. And notice this. Just being in the Garden of Eden, being in nature would not have been enough for Adam and Eve to know, don't eat from that specific tree. It was necessary that God speak to Adam and Eve. And if that was a verbalized, spoken word to Adam and Eve all those years ago, the church has confessed that likewise, we have an inscripturated, a written-down word of God that we need, that's necessary for us, or else we wouldn't fully understand God. 
One of the classic texts about the Bible is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll, no need to turn there, although you're welcome to, if you know where it is, but I'll go ahead and read the verses now. This is Paul later in life speaking to Timothy, a next-generation leader, and Paul is setting Timothy up to remain faithful to God and fruitful in mission after Paul passes. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says here, these scriptures, they are able to make you wise for salvation. And let me throw another theological category at you. Teachers in the church have said there are two different types of revelation, how God has revealed himself. One is general one is special. The general, common revelation is how God has revealed himself in all things, in nature. Have you ever had the experience when you're walking in the forest or in a, in a mountain range or looking out from the Jersey Shore across the ocean and you feel this sense of being connected with God? Even if you're somebody who may not count yourself a person of faith normally, when you see something beautiful in nature, Something pangs inside of you. Something vibrates in resonance. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe this is not all that there is. And we can learn about God, that God is a creator, that God is powerful, that we're in relationship to him, that we're beholden in him from this general revelation. But to learn about God's love for us, to learn about Jesus, we need God. It's necessary for him to verbally reveal such things to us. About 100 years ago, a Dutch theologian, Eric Mitchell, a couple weeks ago, talked about Abraham Kuyper. If it ain't Dutch, it ain't much. The Dutch hits keep coming. Herman Bavink, another Dutch theologian, said this, and the language may sound a little rough to you, but I think the point is valid. Bavink says, general revelation, just the nature stuff, therefore is insufficient for human beings as sinners. Nature, general revelation, knows nothing of grace and forgiveness. And general revelation, nature, is frequently even a revelation of wrath. So nature can't tell you about how to get saved, to put it in those words. We need the Bible for that. And interestingly, this is one of the reasons why I pulled that quote and kept it in the sermon, is that for now, here in the late modern West, if you talk to a secular person, if there is a God, that God probably loves us. That's actually historically unique in the history of the world and looking around the world for in lots of other cultures and for most of human history, people would look out at nature and say, okay, there may be a God that's powerful and created all of this, but the assumption is the opposite. This God is against us. This is a violent God. This God doesn't love us. Just look around. Look at famine. Look at war. Look at genocide. Look at earthquake. But God loves us. That's not necessarily an assumption that a lot of us would make. But we need the scriptures to hear of God's love for us and his plan of salvation for us. And I think it's important actually to go back to what the Bible actually says about itself, the self-testimony of the scriptures. In that 2 Timothy 3 passage, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So the understanding, and you can agree or disagree with this, but the understanding of the scriptures themselves is that this is, thus saith the Lord. It's not just, say, in the Old Testament, this is what Isaiah thought on his long walks on the beach about God. 
No, this is God actually bringing revelation. So it's not just the words of Isaiah, but thus saith the Lord. The apostle Peter gives us a window into how this happened. Peter, in his letter in the New Testament, says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drew the ancient writers to write God's words. So a couple of garden of forking paths here. Is the Bible inspired or inspiring? Is the Bible revelation or reflection? Is the Bible inspired or inspiring? I would say, hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible at least occasionally is inspiring to you, makes you think about God, makes you want to obey, gets you fired up to tell people about Jesus or serve our world with mercy and justice, all that good stuff. But the Bible is not just on its own terms and what it says about itself, not just inspiring, but inspired breathed out by God, as closely associated with the person, one's breath, the breath of life. This is God's breath, God's scripture, God's speech for us. Or is it revelation or reflection? You might think, and I wouldn't blame you if you're just assuming something like this, well, what the Bible is, is you have all these people in ancient times that felt really deeply these these nonverbal emotions that they attached to God and maybe even truly felt God's spirit was like moving in them in all of these emotive ways. And they took these nonverbal emotions and feelings and the Bible is their reflection about what actually happened in those religious experiences. The scriptures say that the Bible is even more than that, where God is not only revealing impressions to the biblical writers, but leading them toward the words. It's God's revelation. And I think in modern contexts like this, that can actually feel pretty constraining. Wow, so God gave us these scriptures all those years ago, and we need to trust and obey this word as best that we can. That's shackling to human beings. That's not free at all. Well, I will come back and say that human freedom needs boundaries. Say you have a friend who says, I choose now to be free. No more listening to what other people say. I'm going to be a free person, and all I need is a couch, Cheetos, and haagen And that's going to be my existence for the rest of my life. I'm just going to sit on the couch, eat junk food, and it's going to be great because I am being free. Hopefully you'll come back to that friend and say, you know, love the enthusiasm here, but that might not be a great idea for you. There's freedom, but it begs the question of what's healthy and what's good. The scriptures come back and say, there are better and worse ways to be free. There are ways to be free that better or worse fit how I've created you, God says, as human beings. And here is the way truly to be free. As you listen to me, these scriptures are necessary. And we get a relationship with God out of all of this. God is a person. And as a person, God is pleased to reveal himself to us in these scriptures. And if we don't heed the scriptures, in my opinion, kind of like what Lloyd said to my friend, it's not really a relationship with God. We want to listen to God and learn what is pleasing to him and learn his way. A couple of times over the years, 
not often, but I've had kind of this back and forth conversation with the scriptures with a couple of friends, and they'll tell me, okay, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, not a religious person. Yeah, I do have my relationship with God in my own way, and then I'll say, okay, well, what do you do for revelation? How, how has God revealed yourself? And that friend will say, oh, no, like, I don't think there's any revelation. I'm conceiving of God in my own way. I've actually come back literally twice and said, well, don't tell that to your spouse, right? Or try it out and say, hey, I'm really happy that I'm going to be in this relationship with you or that I am in this relationship with you. Just so you know, I am not going to listen to you anymore because it's much better for me if I just conceive of you in my own special way. That's not a relationship, right? That's our relationship with ourselves. So if you want to have a relationship with God, understand that God must not be a silent partner in that relationship. And the scriptures are also sufficient for us by which we receive rest. And going to the Bible, learning the scriptures, learning God's will helps us to live well. And that passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, so that the person of God may be complete. Let the Bible be enough for us. The Represence Initiative, one of our practices of presence that we actually started our home meeting year with, our small groups, was daily office, where we are seeking Bible saturation. And it takes time, it takes practice. If, if the Bible is just a phone book to you, for those of you that know what phone books actually were back in the day, and you don't have any access to it, it's heavy, it's a nice doorstop, but I don't know how to get into it, talk to somebody, talk to me, talk to pastors, talk to consistory members, talk to anybody, we would love to help you with time and with patience, get into the scriptures and actually be molded by them in a deep way. But I don't blame you if you think, because of all the tensions out there, but is the Bible really enough for today? Because today is really actually pretty complicated, and the Bible's so old. So much has happened since the Bible was written scientifically or historically or with archaeology or with globalism or with pluralism and on down the line. If you're wrestling with these things, I would actually mention to you at this point, these are not new questions. Many of them are actually really old questions. And sometimes when I'll listen to a podcast or read a blog post with somebody that maybe has been a Christian and is walking away and gives all of these objections to the scriptures as if, he or she just came up with them, and these are radically new criticisms, they've been around forever, a lot of them. So don't panic. These are old questions, and at least in my opinion, as I look at things, with you look, as you look at the history of the Bible through the ages, to me, I see the scriptures being incredibly, breathtakingly resilient throughout the ages. And if you tune into any number of issues, Sometimes you see a process of something going on in a certain culture that seems to be out of line with the scriptures, and occasionally the church will say, okay, we need to go back to the Bible, let's think about this, let's talk about this more, and occasionally the consensus is actually what we thought the Bible required here maybe not is required. So yeah, let's, let's take in some other things and see where the Bible is leading us. It's still necessary, it's still enough, it's still authoritative, it's still clear, but maybe we had the wrong idea. Or there have been other times when something was out of alignment culturally. The church has gone back to the scriptures and said, the scriptures are simply out of aligned culturally right now. We think we're interpreting this issue correctly, and it's just, it doesn't fit right now, but that's okay too. And to me, 
I think it's an act of hubris for us to say to ourselves, as the Bible has been resilient around the world and throughout the ages so much, this is the moment in the late modern West where finally, once and for all, the Bible's going to collapse. Famously, centuries ago, the French philosopher Voltaire, Voltaire, who was an early atheist, in the modern sense of the term, said that by the end of his generation, nobody is going to trust the scriptures anymore. That was hundreds of years ago. But as we come to the sufficiency of the scriptures, we're actually able to find good rest. Holidays are coming up. We're going to be back with family in different combinations. Maybe we stress out about family. And I've had my stressful moments where, whether it's family or friends, and we're having a conversation, and I know that there's going to be a moment coming where I'm going to say, actually, I'm, I'm not in the same place as you about this issue, whether it's veering to the right or to the left, because I feel like the scriptures put me in a different place. And in my fears, I worry about that record scratch moment that's going to kill relationship, at least from my perspective, that has never actually happened. I've never lost any relationship in my life because I've said the scriptures compel me to be here. And I try to be careful to say, I would love to love you and keep relationship in the midst of disagreement, but look, I am putting myself under the authority here. That's actually freeing, and we can find rest. So my wife Emily and I, we have a household now of mostly teenagers, middle schoolers, and high schoolers. And for whatever reason, apparently from what we hear, Emily and I are the strictest, least permissive parents in the history of the world, according to other voices in our household, which I disagree with because my parents were actually the strictest and least permissive. In, in the history of the world. But every once in a while, we'll tell our kids, okay, you have to get home at night a little bit earlier than you would like. Feel free to blame us. Throw us under the bus. It's not your fault. Just say, my parents said so. Now, not throw God under the bus per se, but it's okay to say, look, this is what I believe God has revealed. And really, your disagreement is not between me and you. It's between you And what I consider the living God has revealed to all of us. But what is your sufficiency? If you're thinking, well, maybe the Bible isn't where I I need to get enough and get everything. We can turn the question around and say, well, then what? And this is a culturally curious moment where I think for for many of us, uh, secular people or agnostics, like practically speaking at least, even if we might not ask the question, how do I get enough to have guidance and direction for my life? Well, I'll be true to myself, and I'll select a couple other trusted voices, whether it's professors, whether it's experts, whether it's social media, whether it's entertainment world. So true to myself, and I'll select a couple other voices, and maybe my friend group too. Say that's door number one. True to myself, I'll choose a couple other voices. And then door number two, I would say, I am trusting for guidance and direction in my life in a book that has been trusted and relied upon by literally billions of people for millennia, and this book has gone around the world and has been found to be trustworthy and reliable in cultures that were way different from one another. And here's the quirk. Why is door number one obviously good and smart and wise and valid? and door number two necessarily crazy. You're chopping off your head. You're not thinking at all when you do that. 
or there's some biases woven in. Also, clarity about the scriptures, which brings us into reality. But what about all of those contradictions, for example? And I would say, are there contradictions in the Bible? In my opinion, I actually see a few. As in questions where one part of the scripture said this, one said this, how do you reconcile them? There's a small handful of places where I'll say, I actually don't know. And I'm just going to have to wait till heaven for, for God to explain it to me. But I would say, sometimes culturally speaking, when you hear about contradictions in the Bible, the idea is that there are hundreds, if not thousands of them. But to me, there's just less than 10 maybe, and they're all relatively minor, and they're not worth stressing out about. I mentioned last week Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2. That's one of those places where people will say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself because you have two radically different creation stories that were copied and pasted together. I'll just come back and say, there has been Jewish and Christian reflection for centuries, yay, millennia, that have not seen a contradiction here, but say, there's a beautiful coherence. So we can be a little less shrill and come into a much deeper place of appreciation when it comes to the scriptures themselves. And of course, we need to interpret the Bible well. And I've said before, this is me, and I hope this is where Liberty Collingswood is, is directing too. And, you know, hopefully it's not just ego where I want the church to reflect my personal view, but I think this is healthy and good. On one hand, we don't want to be a church that says the Bible is God's word, it's without error, and it's absolutely clear, and all of our interpretations are instantly correct. No. We need to read the Bible well and patiently and in conversation. But we also don't want to be on the other end and say, the Bible's a mess, full of contradictions, we can't trust it for anything. Because the church has confessed that there is a fundamental clarity for the scriptures. The analogia scriptori, the analogy of scripture, where for generations, Christian teachers have said, some passages in the Bible are super clear, some passages are less clear, and what you want to do is you take the clear passages and use them to help you with the less clear ones. And that goes both ways. Of course, not every passage of the scripture is sufficiently clear. But there is at the same time, if we read it well and ask God's Holy Spirit to illumine us, there is a fundamental clarity at the same time. And this clarity gives us reality to cut through the fog of our times. Maybe you're feeling foggy where there are so many voices out there and this is the age of disinformation in so many ways. And without something that's deeper and older, how do you know that you're not being held culturally captive, either to the secular right or to the secular left? Are things really as obvious as they seem? I read an article, a study a little bit while ago about mask wars, and by the grace of God, this is not a church that has divided over masks and succumbed to the mask wars. It happens in certain churches. But this philosophy professor, I think it was written by a philosophy professor, said, if you take a step back, is it obvious and necessarily the case that it would be the left that's very pro-mask and the right that tends to be very anti-mask or much less pro-mask? For example, you have people on the left with masks saying it is right and good for us to limit our freedom, submit to the government for the sake and safety and security and health of all of our citizens in our nation. Rewind 15, 20 years for the Patriot Act, which was instituted after the Iraq invasion by George W. Bush, this, the left was completely against the Patriot Act because they said, how dare the government limit our freedom 
for the health and safety and security of our nation. And so this article was saying, did it necessarily have to go this way with masks? Or you have people on the right protesting masks and are saying, how dare the government tell me what to do with my body? And in some cases, literally, the right is saying, using the slogan, my body, my choice, which for generations has been the left pro-choice, one of the left pro-choice slogans. All that is, and you can quibble with that, but you can also quibble with the quibbles to say maybe secularity is not as monolithic, obvious, and necessary as we think it might be. And finally, authority, which gives us a relativizing. I think it is normative for a follower of Jesus to say, the scriptures are binding upon me. Follow your own conscience. It's between you and God at the end of the day. Listen to the church. Hopefully listen to pastors. But as a Protestant church, we say it's ultimately between you and God. But to say, Scripture binds me to be here and not there. And I'll qualify and say, you can be a Christian and not have that view. This doesn't mean that you're not saved. And there are plenty of Christians around the world that don't treat the Scriptures in that normative way. But I would say that's a sub-alignment with a robust expression of Christianity. But I get the idea that it's scary to say, I am going to submit myself to this authority. But I'd say one person for whom it wasn't scary was Jesus of Nazareth all those years ago. And it was Jesus that said in John's gospel, Scripture cannot be broken. It was Jesus in Matthew's gospel who in the Sermon on the Mount said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And heaven and earth will not pass away until every iota, every jot, every tittle of all of God's law is accomplished or fulfilled. But we see in Jesus at the same time the paragon, the epitome of human flourishing. Jesus believed that the Bible was trustworthy and reliable and loved it. A German theologian said this, Jesus saw his entire life calling in the scriptures. It was not marginal, but absolutely central to his life. His whole will was consumed with this, to do what each commandment commanded. Here is the one man, the first in history, who not only knew the word, but did it. And Jesus is the one that took the curse for breaking the tree. Adam and Eve, and we fell in Adam and Eve. We sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. Jesus, the son, said, I will take that punishment upon myself for all of God's people that come to me throughout the ages. This is the one that gives grace. And I would say get out of the halfway house, if that's where you are with the scriptures. If it's like, yeah, the scriptures are there, but I'm here and that's okay. Or if you're somebody on the other, that's a halfway house. When it's like, I'm kind of the authority and I'm treating God as kind of the authority too. But your authority sounds like it's trumping God's. But I would say if you have a different view of scripture that says, yes, this is my authority and I need to be in line with it. Well, good for me. I have the right doctrine of scripture. You're not following it either. You're also out of alignment. Nobody's obeying perfectly, right? So we, nobody in this room or nobody online is not out of alignment with the scriptures. We've got to come back in. But as we do, we find ourselves realigned in relationship with God with a healthy, healthy relativizing for ourselves. To flip it around one last time, is secularity settled? Does it deliver and is it safe? Is it settled? I'm going on a jag right now with 20th century cultural and political history in different ways. And it's shocking to me how the left and the right of the time not only has different views of the left and the right today with different things, but not just like 
things have developed more in the rightward or leftward direction, like some absolute flips over time. Is secularity settled either on the right or on the left? Does it deliver? And as I get older and see what's going on in our world, I see both from the secular right and secular left promises of utopia that will not happen. And it's like, lean hard this way or lean hard that way, and that will accomplish this utopian vision of a world of wholeness and security and peace. I don't think either side can deliver that. And instead, what I see is as you lean hard here and lean hard there, you're going to become more angry, more anxious, more tribal, less tolerant of people that are different than you are, and angry all the time. And is it safe? As these secularities become more monolithic, any word out of line can be shut down. But we can flip the script again and say, Jesus, we're coming back to you in the scriptures. And if there's a negative prohibition here in Genesis 2.17, don't eat that fruit, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We also hear the invitation of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.